We'll hear argument next in case 076053, Giles versus California. Ms. Burkhart. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Uh, in Crawford, um, this Court made clear that in order to determine the scope of the Confrontation Clause, we look to the common law, and particularly as it existed at the time of the framing. And as we've shown in our briefs, the California's forfeiture rule did not exist in common law, did not exist at the time of the framing. And the common law concept um, that is embodied in the Confrontation Clause has uh, grave practical importance to defendants, and particularly to the defendant in this case, because the application of this new forfeiture rule that California created deprived the petitioner of his right to present um, a, a fair claim of self-defense. Basically, the statement that was admitted uh, accused the petitioner of having uh, viciously attacked Misavi and having threatened her at knife point and having threatened to kill her. And the admission of this statement, which he never had a chance to cross-examine or test by cross-examination, obviously was highly prejudicial because it indicated to the jury that he was planning to kill her. But he got, he got on the stand and he said some very nasty things about her. I mean, he painted her as aggressive, vengeful, uh, isn't there a legitimate rebuttal when it, he is painting her as the aggressor and she has given a statement that suggests that he's the one who is aggressor? Well, Justice Ginsburg, the, her statement came in in the prosecution's case in chief. But could it have come in as rebuttal of his testimony? Same testimony by the police. Was it the police officer that yes. took her statement? Okay. He gets on the stand and he says all these unpleasant things about her. And then the state says, okay, now we have our chance and we're going to put in her statement through the testimony of the police officer to rebut what he's just said. Well, the difference is that his statements about her went solely to his state of mind. They did not come in for their truth. But her statements came in for their truth. So it really isn't an apples and orange comparison. I would think the, the, the difference is that his statements about her were subject to cross-examination. And indeed, of course. And her statements about <sighs> exactly. him not. Well, but we're, we're talking exactly. about the door, the door opening here at, at trial. Did he give notice that he was going to testify in, in California? Did, did they have some rule that if you're going to testify, you have to give notice? He did indicate that he was going to present a claim of self-defense, and I believe he indicated he was going that to testify. That tends to diminish somewhat, but not entirely, your, I think, quite proper response that this came in on direct, not, not cross. It does Well, but Justice Kennedy, the fact that it was a self-defense claim is irrelevant. This testimony would have come in, her testimony, the hearsay statement, would have come in even if he hadn't presented a self-defense claim. It just was a coincidence in this case. Uh, California claims that they have a right to, to introduce such testimonial statements in any case in which they can show that the defendant was the 
cause of the witness's absence. I well, mean, maybe, so they're wrong. maybe they would be wrong in another case, but we have this case, and Justice Scalia has suggested, I take it, that this testimony could not come in even by way of rebuttal, even by way of cross-examination. Do you, do you share that view? I do. Uh, it, it doesn't really go to uh, any of the um, claims. It goes to his credibility. He's, well, just, he's just painted a picture of this woman, which is quite different from what her statement to the police officer would portray. Well, the injustice here, Justice Ginsburg, is that he doesn't have a, any meaningful opportunity to contest what the police officer says she said because he never had an opportunity to cross-examine her. Well, well of, of, of course, of course, that's that's true. That's the that's the reason for the conf- confrontation confrontation rule. But uh, it it does seem to me that this is responsive to his defense. And you say, well, it's his state of mind, and, and her testimony was general. Uh, I, I think it does go to his state of mind. I, I'm, I'm not following. Is, is, there a, is there an exception to the hearsay rule so long as the hearsay is brought in in rebuttal? Is, 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 there, is there a rebuttal exception to the hearsay rule? Not to my knowledge. Think but, but we are talking here about the definition or the, the contours of the equitable uh, uh, rule, the forfeiture rule for confrontation. And I think perhaps what Justice Ginsburg was suggesting, certainly what I was suggesting, is that when we're looking uh, at whether or not there's a forfeiture, uh, we're talking about equitable considerations. Now, it's, it's true in, in this case um, uh, we're, we're presented with an instance that I, I've never seen, which is that the, the murder itself makes the, uh, the declarant unavailable for purposes of the equitable exception. And it, and it is true that that goes much further than the common law did. It goes much further, and indeed the state has not uh, cited one single case at common law uh, or after that supports its view that this rule is uh, is proper. How much are and we supposed to follow the common law, in your opinion, as it was in the 18th century or 12th century or something? I mean, suppose, to take a, a fanciful example, I mean, but suppose there was a common law rule, and I know there wasn't. But suppose there was a common law rule that said in cases involving witches, you cannot admit any evidence because either the the witch, accused witch, came up out of the water where they were dunking her, and therefore she's guilty, so there's no need, or she's underwater, which shows she's incident, uh, you know, guilty, but you can't uh, cross-examine a person underwater. Now, if there were a rule like that, would we now incorporate it into the Constitution of the United States? The answer is meant to be no. Yes. <laughs> now, but, okay. now let's get more realistic. Yes. They're all kinds he's, of. He's thinking about Cambridge and not England. <laughs> okay. So there are all kinds of rules of disqualification of witnesses in the 17th and 18th century. You, you couldn't testify. In this case, there would have been no admission if she'd been married to the man instead of being his girlfriend. 
You couldn't have a spouse. You couldn't have an interested party. You couldn't have a child who didn't understand the oath. You couldn't have a person who was an atheist. You couldn't have uh, uh, somebody who was a convicted felon. So now are we supposed to incorporate all these things into the Confrontation Clause? Do, do any of them have anything to do with the Confrontation Clause? No. Uh, it, isn't, it doesn't have to do with the Confrontation but, Clause that you couldn't cross-examine a person who didn't understand the meaning of the oath? Justice Breyer, the Confrontation Clause sets forth a basic policy, which is that we are to have live testimony in court. We have to have witnesses available in court. What about a person who, the same but, facts, but he could not, wasn't eligible to testify? At common law, you never could have gotten that person to testify in court no matter what. And therefore, what? That's what I'm asking, if we're supposed to follow all the contours of that rule. Well, in Crawford, this Court says we do look to, all right. to see and what Now, the, does that make sense? For well, example, but this, if this woman had been married, she could not, she, her testimony, whether your client deliberately procured its abs- her absence, accidentally procured her absence, whatever he did, that testimony could not have come in. Is that right? She was, if she was married to him. Well, that sort of, that sounds like the situation in Crawford. That. What? Well, but I, I think what Justice I'm trying Breyer's to describe what the contours are. Yes. What, well, what but ones the, do we the, ignore? The framers set forth the proper contours, which is that any exception to the Confrontation Clause must be very, very narrow. And they approved an exception for witness tampering, which is deeply embedded in the common but, law. But I think what Justice Breyer's line of questioning points up is that there were other uh, provisions of the evidence rule followed in England, which would not allow the testimony to come in in the first place. In this case, we wouldn't even have the issue before us if the testimony were not admissible as an exception to the hearsay rule. It is admissible. Then we have to ask if it conforms with the confrontation clause, which is the issue we have. But because of the restrictions he points to, there was never the occasion for the common law to explore the boundaries of the forfeiture exception in the confrontation context. Well, Your Honor. And, and, and besides which, uh, uh, the, the question that Justice Breyer was asking was already answered in Crawford, wasn't it? Yes, it was. The case from which he dissented. But we did say that the meaning of the confrontation clause is the meaning it bore when the people adopted it. That is right. Well, there was a dying declaration rule uh, at the common law, wasn't there? Yes, there was. Well, that didn't require any inquiry into the intent uh, of the the person responsible for for the death or the imminent death, right? That's correct. But the dying declaration, the fact that the dying declaration rule existed with its very specific elements shows powerfully that no general uh, rule existed, such as the California rule. Because if the California rule had... Well, if the dying declaration rule uh, uh, didn't require intent, uh, why should yours? Because the forfeiture rule, at, which is a separate, entirely separate rule of common law, 
did require intent to prevent testimony. It has always been viewed that way from its inception in Lord Morley's case. Instead of intent, the dying declaration rule required knowledge by the declarant that the declarant was about to die. Correct. Right? And, That's right. And the, 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 the uh, evidence of truthfulness was apparently that the person was about to enter the next world. That's right. And most of us don't lie at that particular moment. Whereas, uh, in the Confrontation Clause situation, you have a totally different situation. Correct. I join Crawford. Uh, I and Justice Scalia would like to kick me off the boat, which I'm rapidly leaving in any event. But the, 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 you, you, the, you jumped the, off in Crawford, right. I thought. But my question, so I want to go back to this, because what I'm finding difficult is what, let's take the specific case. Suppose they had been married. If they had been married in 1789, I guess, or 1750 or 1400 or whenever, her testimony would not have come in regardless. I think I'm right on that. You mean as a spouse? Yes, as a spouse. Mm -hmm. And therefore, whether he procured her absence or not is beside the point. Right. Now, do we follow that rule under the Confrontation Clause today? I think your answer was that in Crawford, that was the situation. It was a spouse, wasn't it? I'm sorry? In Crawford. In Crawford, it was a spouse. And it, and it was the defendant who said he didn't want her to testify. That's right. Could I think, I think you're in under, under, would the testimony of someone who heard her say something, was that admissible? Under, under Crawford? No, no, under the common law. I don't think it was. Hearsay was absolutely inadmissible. And there are just very, very narrow exceptions under the common law. One Even in the case of an unavailable witness? Of course, especially in the case of an unavailable witness. Uh, in Lord Morley's case, they've set forth three uh, rules. But there were some, some things that are not testimonial. And, for example, suppose she left a sealed letter. She's been murdered, and the letter is to be opened only upon her death. And the letter says, if I was done in, go after him. Could that come into evidence? Well, uh, Justice Ginsburg, depending on whether it was deemed to be testimony or not. Which well, is, is, not, it, is it? It's just, I'm giving it's you. It's not an issue in our case. I mean, perhaps. I mean, obviously, as you point out, if uh, she had made a statement to a, uh, not a non-police officer, to a friend, family member, whatever, a non-testimonial statement, then that probably could come in. But what is the issue here? So what's the line between the, what? I understand that she's accusing him to a police officer. Yes. So that you say that's testimonial. The courts. If, if she's talking to a friend and, and saying that she's scared to death of this man, that so the friend could testify? That's perhaps non-testimonial. But they, Why? Well, uh, what's the difference? If, if this, this rule is, is going to separate the testimonial from the non-testimonial, you ought to be able to tell when it's one and when it's the other. Well, the court hasn't fully described all the parameters of testimonial, but our case doesn't, does not involve that issue because this statement is clearly testimonial. Could I ask you whether there's really anything involved in, in this case? Both, uh, both the California Supreme Court and the Court of Appeals 
said, it is inconceivable that any rational trier of fact would have concluded that the shooting was excusable or justifiable. So doesn't that virtually guarantee that if there was an error here, it was harmless error? Well, no, not necessarily. I think it's very significant that the Court of Appeal, neither the California uh, Supreme Court nor the Court of Appeal, engaged in a harmless error analysis. And that um, statement that you quote um, presupposed that this, the uh, testimonial hearsay statement at issue was a large factor in coming to that conclusion. So, you know, no, I don't think it's necessary. No, that, it, that really went no, no, is that correct? Did, weren't they concluding that based on the independent evidence, it was virtually no. inconceivable? No. No. How do we know uh, in this case that part of his intent was not to prevent her from testifying at trial? I mean, it's obviously he was upset about something else, but the, maybe in his mind he's saying, oh, boy, and she's talked to people about how I'm going to kill her. Uh, I better do it so that she can't testify. There was a specific finding of fact by the Court of Appeal that he did not intend to kill her. He did not kill her to prevent testimony. How are we ever going to know that in the typical case? Well, by, you know, analyzing the evidence. I mean, obviously, there are many ways, and perhaps he made a statement. Well, take a case like this. I don't understand how that finding could have been made. He knew that she'd reported that she had said to her friends, he's going to kill me, he's going to kill me. And then he figures he better do it, or, or his, his, it's going to, his self-defense claim is going to look a lot weaker. Well, that, I, I think, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, that doesn't make an awful lot of sense, because that indicates that he killed her in order to prevent her from No, I'm sorry, it doesn't. It means that that may have been part of his motive to kill her, because I'm not just going to beat her up this time, I'm actually going to kill her, because otherwise I'm going up the river. Here, it's, he gets a great benefit from murdering her, which is that her, her testimony is not available. We usually, under our system, don't try to give benefits to murders. Well, first of all, the Court of Appeals specifically found that he did not kill her to prevent testimony. The California Supreme Court uh, basically adopted that. I understand that, and you've State said that. You've said that. Excuse me, counsel. You've said that already. And what I'm saying is that I don't understand, under the legal standard we might adopt how that sort of finding makes sense. I mean, you don't ask him, say, well, why did you kill her? Uh, uh, was it to prevent her testimony or not? That's not available in inquiry. So how can that sort of factual finding be made? Well, the courts have, have been, in federal and state courts, have been making that factual finding for, for decades under the federal rule and under the Carlson line of cases. But the, the puzzle is here, the... It's his own murder trial. So he didn't murder her so that she couldn't be a witness at the trial for her, her murder. Correct. Uh, but he might have murdered her because she had good grounds to get him indicted on criminal assault charges. Maybe he murdered her so that she would not be available to testify at such a trial. Well, that's highly speculative. Um, there was no proceeding. There was no indication um, in the record that, that her assault claim was ever going to ripen into any kind of criminal proceeding at all. I had thought that the common law rule is that you have to have uh, rendered the witness, intentionally rendered the witness unavailable 
with regard to the particular trial that's before the court, not rendering the witness unavailable for some other litigation. That was. Do you know of any case where it was some other litigation no. that? No, I didn't think so. No, that is the common. Well, let, let's assume that the only case on the books uh, pre-1789 was Morley, uh, in which the defendant did specifically intend to keep the witness away from the trial. But let's assume, contrary to fact, that the Morley case uh, gave a a very uh, sweeping, expansive definition of the equitable forfeiture rule and said uh, the defendant cannot profit by his own wrong. Uh, Could we take that general language pre-1789 and say that that it supports the rule today, assuming we could find that in the Morley case or other aspects of the common law, or would we be just confined, as you understand, Crawford, to the specific holding of Morton that there has to be a specific intent? Well, the hypothetical assumes something which, is, which, which uh, Your Honor admits is, is simply not the case. I mean, I suppose assuming, please, for the sake please, of argument, make the that it was there, I suppose the Court could could rule on the basis of that, but that is definitely not the case and has never been the case. All right. Well, suppose we read the English authorities that it does not foreclose the expansion of the equitable forfeiture rule. Well, I, I think the English authorities do foreclose it because the dying declaration cases, and there are dozens of them, would not have come out as they did if this expansive forfeiture rule had existed. It would make no sense. I, I find that difficult to understand because the dying declaration rule came up in many instances when the confrontation rule was not involved at all. That's right. But, with this, but the point I'm making is this, that under California's theory, uh, if the defendant is causes the absence of the witness, um, and all you need to show is causation, then the witness's testimonial statement will come in. But under the dying declaration rule, mere causation is not sufficient. You have to also show other factors, and very particularly that the, that the witness was aware of impending death. That requirement is totally superfluous under the California theory. And yet, uh, it show, the fact that, that no lawyer or no judge for hundreds of years ever suggested that um, in, in your, those your cases. declaration cases are not just murders, though. They are just murders. Pardon me? They are just murders, Your Honor. R- really? I thought they came in in civil cases all the time. The ones we cite are murders, and, they're t- in, and they are murder cases in, in criminal cases. Well, but uh, I agree. I'll, I'll check, the, the check. But the rationale for the dying declaration rule has nothing to do with who caused the death. Right. Well, you know, it specifically goes to the — an element of the dying declaration is that the statement has to relate to the specific cause of the death. So it really does. But but it has to be imminent, too. Well, the death doesn't have to be imminent specifically. That perception has to be. The declarant has to believe. But that's an entirely different rationale from the issue we have here, because it applies across the board to civil cases and and all sorts of litigation. It applies powerfully and in many, many instances to criminal cases. And that fact 
and that has existed for for centuries, shows that there was no general rule that all you, you know, needed to do was to be accused of murdering the victim, because otherwise, if, the, if California had rule had existed, there would be no need to make this other showing in the dying declaration cases. And in many cases that we have cited in our brief, and as the NACDL has cited, um, Evidence, important evidence was kept out. Testimonial hearsay accusations were kept out from the victim accusing the defendant uh, were kept out because they didn't meet the specific requirements, specifically the sense of impending death. But the forfeiture rule is designed to suspend the operation of the confrontation rule. That doesn't mean that it comes in. You still need another hearsay uh, exception which will allow it in. Well, not under the common law. It was, it was, it was one rule under the common law. It was only later that it, it operated as two separate rules, a confrontation and a hearsay rule. Under the common law, all you needed to show was the dying declaration, and then it was admissible for all purposes. There was no distinction between confrontation and hearsay at that time. And so, therefore, uh, again, it just, the, if all you needed to show was that the defendant caused or likely caused the absence or killed the victim. Um, then uh, all of those cases went the wrong way. All of that evidence, the victim's accusations, would have come in uh, automatically. And they did not come in. And case after case, we have showed that. We have cited some dozens of cases that show that. And the state has not cited even one single case, not one, which shows at common law that this evidence here would have come in. I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time if there are no more questions. Thank you, Ms. Burkhart. Mr. Dean Nicola. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. I think I want to um, start off by uh, correcting, I think, the impression that the common law ever stated a rule that intent to tamper was a prerequisite for keeping out uh, the evidence of a, of a victim of a murderer. And I don't think this Court, in the Reynolds case, uh, has ever, or in the subsequent cases, has ever stated such a rule. Oh, it didn't put it in those very words, but I think a lot of the, of the quotations from opinions uh, cited by your friend uh, seem to me to say that. But why don't you start off by telling, by explaining to us why these many cases excluded the dying declaration of the murdered person when, if, if it could not be shown that the murdered person knew when the declaration was made that he or she was dying. If the rule that you're, that you're announcing was the rule at common law, all of those would have come in because that declaration said, this defendant killed me. And therefore, it would have been true in all of those cases that this defendant procured the absence of the witness from, from the trial. Well, how do you explain? And there are many cases. It, it's not just a few. The, the, the requirement in the dying declaration cases that the, that the declarant be aware of impending death is, is uniform. Why even bother with that requirement if it could all come in under, un, un, under this uh, uh, procurement of the absence of the witness rule? 
Well, I think as, as um, Justice Kennedy's question suggested, that there are different elements to, that need to be um, surpassed before the dying de- declaration would come in. That what happens in the dying declaration situation, Your Honor, is that there, there's no validation or vindication of the defendant's cross-examination right. And that's what we're interested in here today, how the common law would have treated the cross-examination right of a defendant who killed a witness. The dying declaration rule certainly cabined the admissibility of dying declarations uh, for reliability reasons, but it did not detract from the fact that the evidence of the dying declaration came in peculiarly when the defendant killed the um, victim of the crime, the witness whose testimony was coming in. I'm not sure you've answered my question. Why wasn't it enough for the prosecution to say this dying person said that this defendant killed her? Therefore, this declaration can come in because this defendant procured the absence of this uh, declarant by killing her. It, it was. It would. Nobody even ever makes those arguments. They they fight it out on whether the the the, the declarant mm-hmm. was aware of impending death or not. But that would have been totally irrelevant if it all comes in under under the rule that uh, uh, that you're arguing for here. No, because under the rule I'm arguing for, and and why the prosecutor wouldn't have succeeded in making that argument, the rule I'm arguing for is simply that in the situation where the defendant kills the witness. The common law did not recognize, uh, or there's no strong case authority that would indicate that the common law would recognize a confrontation right with respect to that defendant against his, his witness's statement. Nevertheless, the common law puts some other non-confrontation restrictions on the admissibility of the dying declaration. Those were reliability-based restrictions. Reliability-based restrictions can't determine the scope of the confrontation right. Under Crawford, the confrontation right is a separate um, process that has to be adhered to and can't be substituted with another reliability um, assessment machine unless there is a rule that would let that statement in that doesn't depend on a reliability assessment. I I understand the distinction you're drawing uh, at the present time, or at least uh, since the Bill of Rights was adopted. Uh, We have two regimes. We have the constitutional um, condition, and we have hearsay rules. Yes. But with respect to the common law as it stood at the time that the Bill of Rights was adopted, there wasn't such a distinction, was there? In, in other words, to the extent that the confrontation right is informed by the common law antecedent, the common law antecedents were not drawing the line that you're drawing, were they? I think that's right, Your Honor. And, and if that is the case, then it seems to me you haven't answered Justice Scalia's question. Uh, because Justice Scalia's question says, let's just talk about common law antecedents for a moment. Uh, and given common law antecedents, why were people worried about the consciousness of death under the dying declaration rule, if there was this broader rule, which is supposed to inform our understanding of the confrontation right, which would have let it in simply because the crime had forfeited the right to object. And it seems to me that you still have not answered his question. Well, let me, uh, let me 
take a different tack. In, under the common law rule, if the defendant killed the um, witness and the witness's statement met the dying declaration criteria, that statement would come in against the defendant. But if the defendant killed the same victim and you had another witness who witnessed the crime and made a dying declaration that qualified under the rule, that dying declaration describing the defendant's infliction of the mortal blow, that dying declaration would not have come in. So if, I it think was, if it was testimony, there are a lot of declarations it, yes. that are not testimonial. If, if it were testimonial. And the rule was very important for those. Yes. There are also declarations that are testimonial, in which case we look to the confrontation concept. Yes, yes but, I think, but I think with respect to testimonial statements, it's, it, I think it's, it gives you an insight into what the common law would have done with respect to the alleged confrontation rights of the murderer against the victim to know that when the defendant murdered the victim, the victim's dying declaration came in without regard to confrontation. It might not have been excluded because it might not have met other criteria, but it would have come in without confrontation, and it would have come in without confrontation in a way that the, the mere witness who makes a dying declaration and, and witnesses the same crime would not have come in. I would suppose that... Um there are a lot, a lot of situations in which a dead victim has made statements pertinent to the murder. So wouldn't, wouldn't your rule drive a pretty big hole through Crawford? This is not an isolated instance where the victim said something about the murderer. That, that would seem to be a fairly common situation. Well, as most murders uh, involve people who know each other. Well, I think it would. It, I think it would. Uh, it would apply in murder cases uh, with respect to the statements of the victim. So I, I think the. I think the application of the forfeiture rule, on a murder basis, as as we're suggesting here, yes, I think. But it to would. the extent that Crawford is confined simply to testimonial statements, mm-hmm. any number of statements right. uh, that will come in under the, uh, the the California evidence rule are simply not controlled by the Confrontation Clause anyway. It's just a, it's a standard hearsay problem. Yes, like the California Supreme Court recognized, um, and as was buttressed, I think, by this Court's decision in Davis, simply because the defendant might forfeit his confrontation right because he murders the victim, that doesn't necessarily mean that he forfeits his other hearsay rule protections or his other constitutional reliability protections or his right uh, to impeach the uh, hearsay declarations of the unavailable witness, or his right to contradict them, uh, or does, his right that, to does that mean what you just said? Um, that this is not a problem in states that have adopted the federal rules of evidence, because as I understand it, there's an exception. Um, the standard exception for when the defendant procures the witness's absence for the very purpose of preventing the witness from testifying at a particular trial. That's the exception that's in the federal rules of evidence. They don't have an exception, a hearsay exception, for just being responsible for the witness's unavailability. So practically, this couldn't come in um, under a hearsay objection, 
in places that have the federal rules of evidence. Is that right? Yes. If, if the federal rule were interpreted um, to require the intent to tamper in any jurisdiction that decided as a matter of their own uh, hearsay policy that they wanted to uh, govern the admissibility of evidence along those lines. Now, doesn't it yes. have to be interpreted that way? I, you, you, you don't contend it could be interpreted differently. Well, I don't know exactly whether uh, the federal rule has uniformly be, been, in, been interpreted to require a specific intent. Just because it says so. I mean, well, there's, there's um, I don't think, for example, I don't think there's a, there's a federal case that's been cited uh, where the uh, forfeiture has been denied in a situation where the defendant murdered the witness. Can, can you give us one case from the common law, just, just one, in which the procurement of a witness's absence exception to the confrontation clause was applied where there was no intent to prevent the witness from testifying? I don't, I don't think I have a case. I don't think you do either. That, that, that applied the rule. Um, that, but, I, but I don't think there's a case that, that articulated the rule in a way that would have limited its application. The, re- the reason I think is, I, mean, I think if I understand Justice Scalia's question, take ordinary hearsay. Yes. Okay. There's a reason for keeping it out, though there are many exceptions. Now take that subset of ordinary hearsay where it was a statement made purposely to go to trial. Now there's a specially good reason for keeping it out, so like a double reason. And I think he finds it odd that we, under the common law, putting us back then, would say there's an exception where there's a specially good reason for keeping it out. See, in the testimonial case, an exception where you go get the person murdered. Well, you didn't do it purposely. But, but, uh, uh, but there is no exception in just where there's only the ordinary reason for keeping it out. It should seem to work the other way around. Now, to me, that suggests that maybe we shouldn't follow completely the common law as it evolved in evidentiary principles. Maybe we have to assume an intent to allow the contours of the confrontation clause to evolve as the law of evidence itself evolves. Otherwise, we get caught up in these logical contradictions. But what do you think of that? Well, I think that, I think that we can certainly take account, for example, of situations that the common law might not have faced or might not have recognized as representing uh, a, a problem of relevant evidence uh, to, to a crime. You wouldn't want us to get caught up in the limitations of the Confrontation Clause. No, I'm not saying that, Your Honor. I, what I'm saying is that I think that although the, the confrontation clause under Crawford would be accepted under the governing common law rule at the time, the governing common law rule at the time included this forfeiture doctrine. And the forfeiture doctrine, I think, has been recognized, has been based on the, uh, the maxim and the principle that no one may profit from wrongdoing. Do you see what my and, question was? My question is the same question I asked your fellow counsel. My, my, my question is, since I led you to the point where you were willing to say maybe there's some flexibility mm-hmm. here, what? That's where I'm having the trouble. What precisely are the principles I should follow to prevent my going back to look if they dunk witches 
<coughs> but allowing the heart of Crawford to be maintained. How do I do it? I don't know if you can answer that question, but that's the problem that I'm having. Well, I, again, I think, I think, I think the, the resort to the, to, the, to the maxim and the equitable principles that we know that common law subscribed to, and that common law subscribed to those principles in this precise uh, to, as, a, as a rule to, dis, to decide how to uh, resolve this particular kind of uh, issue where the defendant's wrongdoing makes the witness uh, unavailable. That, the common, that because the common law accepted this maxim, uh, that we can, we can look uh, and apply those principles to this situation even though there might not have been a precise common law case on all fours. Does the record show what happened after the police went and, and received the statements by Ms. Avey? Did, did she ask, did she ask to have charges brought? Did the police, uh, file a complaint? The record doesn't show, Your Honor. The, the record doesn't as show. As far as the record shows, nothing happened. They took these, this statement and that was it? Yes, yes, in terms of what, because that was a description of the event that led to the admissibility of the, of the statement. Does the but, record show or did the trial indicate anything that he told the police on the prior occasion they went into different rooms and they each gave statements to no me. no no but uh, but but to the extent that uh, this is a case where the um, the this, the crime occurs after there had been this prior report to an official uh, this case is somewhat closer to the witness tampering scenario that uh, my opponent says characterized the uh, the admissibility of these cases at common law. Uh, so it's not. It wouldn't be a a a, a departure from the theory uh, that they are proposing to recognize that in this situation it's 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 essentially, essentially similar. Well, I, I think it's an. It's a, a Astonishingly broad exception you're asking for. On the other hand, testimonial statements are all that's involved, and so that's a narrow class. And maybe that balances out. I'm not sure. May I, may I just ask, and you can comment on that if you just, but may I ask, uh, the defendant gave notice that he would testify? Uh, it, prior to trial, there was a discussion about what sort of defense he was going to be putting on, and I, he clearly. And California law requires that. No, no, it, it or, just or does not require. Doesn't require that. It just so it happened that in discussing the admissibility of all this other evidence, he wanted to bring in to put words in the mouth of the victim. Uh, the court inquired about how that would be linked up to the defense of self-defense, right. and that's when the defense lawyer indicated that the client would be testifying and putting on and putting on the defense of self-defense. Now, I think if you look at the, if you look at the maxim, the, the, the logic or the rationale of the forfeiture rule, uh, it doesn't admit of any exception for uh, motive to tamper. The motive to tamper rule that the, my opponent is proffering here, I think, is alien to the rationale of the maxim. The maxim is that no one shall profit from wrongdoing. The superimposition of an intent requirement or a motive requirement uh, wouldn't change the fact that with that intent or without the intent, there would be the same profit from the wrongdoing. Uh, there would be the same damage to the integrity of the criminal uh, trial 
because the truth-finding function of the criminal trial would be uh, damaged by uh, allowing the wrongdoing to be used as the basis for keeping out the statement of the defend of the of the witness of the victim of the crime, and allowing the defendant to substitute in its stead his own uh, one-sided or half-true version. Suppose the unavailability is caused by the defendant's negligence. The defendant negligently runs over the victim. I think if that were over the declarant. Yes, I think uh, I think if that were a crime, certainly I think it would clearly satisfy. Suppose it's negligence. If it's mere negligence, if it's mere negligence, uh, I, certainly that's a, that's a, 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 a tougher call. And it might be that in a situation of uh, non-criminal conduct, the intent to tamper conceivably could play a role in elevating that conduct to the kind of wrongdoing that would trigger the rule. But I think as long as you have uh, criminal conduct, and certainly where you have a murder, the rule would be triggered, and the, the, the inquiry would then be whether or not there was causation and whether or not there would be this profit. And the intent to tamper doesn't really relate to the purpose of the rule, to prevent the profiting. So you have the, the same profit, the same damage to the criminal justice system, and the same prejudice to the state which is denied the live testimony of the uh, of the victim. Isn't there a problem that was brought out in in the briefs with uh, this, this man is standing trial before a jury that's going to determine guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm-hmm. But if this testimony is going to come in. The judge has to make some kind of a preliminary finding that he killed her in advance of the jury making that determination. Yes, Your Honor, and, and that happened in this, that didn't happen in this case, so that would be, I think, the template for what would happen in, in future cases. Um, one, I think, preliminary point is that uh, in the California Supreme Court, uh, Giles uh, essentially conceded that the forfeiture rule, when it was otherwise applicable, does apply in a case where you have the wrongdoing being the same crime that's charged. If that's a fault, it's a fault that also exists with the, with the rule being argued by, by your opponent, isn't it? I think that's true, Your Honor. And it's also, it's, it's, it's not, it's not um, unlike the way a, a federal court would have a foundational hearing to make a preliminary determination about the admissibility of a co-conspirator's hearsay statement uh, in a case where the crime charge is conspiracy. Maybe I have to take that back. Maybe uh, it's very — it would be very unusual that someone would kill a victim in order to prevent her testifying at a murder trial, which is not yet in prospect because you haven't murdered her. So these cases may be very rare. So maybe that is an advantage of her rule over yours, that you would very rarely have to find the defendant guilty of the very crime for which he's being prosecuted in order to apply the, uh, the exception to the Confrontation Clause. Yes. I, think it, 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 I think it would be rare. Okay. But it's, but it's, not, but it's not unheard of, and there's a, there's a pedigree for it. In it would be rare on her theory. It wouldn't be rare on yours. 
happen all the time on yours, I would think. But nevertheless, I think the, the, the idea that you could have the hearing, even though it's the same issue that goes before the jury, I think is, 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 is not an obstacle to applying the rule in this case. Well, I would think these cases come in, this problem comes in with spousal abuse. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I don't know what the numbers are, but I get you could find numbers. I suspect, but I don't know, that in many cases where there's a death in, in that kind mm-hmm. of situation, maybe it is accidental. Maybe the, maybe, maybe the man who was beating up his wife didn't really want her to die. Mm-hmm. All right. So that, to me, I guess, suggests that it, that's in favor of your rule, I think. Isn't it? Yeah, I think it, I think it regard, again, regardless of what the defendant's intent is, the rule and the logic of the rule applies. And, and so that would be true whether it was uh, intended or whether it isn't intended. Yes. Whether it's uh, — I mean, I'm not sure how to administer even a criminal-civil distinction. But I think the same, you know, as was said before, the, 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 the argument that what came in in this case was this damaging evidence that, that undermined the defendant's self-defense claim. Well, that evidence would come in even under the theory that intent to tamper were required for uh, for the forfeiture, as well as under our theory. I think you're, it's certainly true that this issue would come up in domestic abuse cases, yes. but I'm not sure that it would be at all limited. I assume you have, you know, gang cases, yes. any case yeah. in which you have familiarity between the victim and the defendant, mm-hmm. which, as I understand it, is the most typical case, but it's not simply in any way limited to the domestic abuse case. No, I wouldn't be limited to the, this case. Uh, it wouldn't be limited to the domestic abuse cases, uh, Mr. Chief Justice. No, I know your rule wouldn't, but yeah. the situation in which okay. the case arises also would certainly no, not. No, it, it comes it, up quite frequently, I would assume, in gang others, cases, because yes. you often have an association yes. with the and, it, and, and I think it can come up in the cases of, uh, of uh, abuse of children, is another example. So I think because there's no, I think, equitable argument on the part of the defendant uh, about why this rule, this no-profit rule, would depend on an intent to tamper, I think if you transport that back into the common law, uh, the same rule and the same principle was applying, uh, and you would, you would have, I think, the same result. Excuse me. I think, um, Again, well, I, I don't want to repeat myself, but I guess I just want to, again, emphasize that the, uh, that the logic of the rule really doesn't admit of an intent uh, requirement. Nothing in this Court's cases has ever dictated an intent requirement. Nothing in the common law cases has ever articulated an intent requirement. And in the common law cases, the rule that we're advancing is justified by the maxim that applied at the common law, and it was also justified, or at least I think uh, an insight into how common law would have devalued the confrontation right of the uh, killer against the, uh, the witness can be seen in the dying declarations case. 
because even though they might ultimately have proved inadmissible on another ground where the special criteria for the dying declaration cases was not met, those cases nevertheless are instances where the evidence comes in against the defendant uh, where he kills the victim. Uh, the Slayers cases uh, that uh, were recognized at common law where no intent uh, was required uh, before somebody would be barred from receiving an inequitable distribution from an insurance policy or from a testator. Those cases were also decided a common law under this maxim. And the ultimate, uh, I think, the ultimate uh, element to the analysis that proves dispositive is whether or not the defendant is benefiting from the wrongdoing. My opponent says that there's no benefit from the wrongdoing unless there's an intent to commit the wrongdoing in the first place. But that's palpably not so. Because you, benefit, you have the benefit if you have the benefit. And to the extent that there is an intent requirement might be perceived as necessary uh, to provide some level of moral blameworthiness in terms of exploiting the wrongdoing, that exploitation occurs in any event when the defendant seeks to take advantage of the wrongdoing by making the objection, and as in this case, exploiting it even further at trial. So the equities of the situation, uh, there's no, I think, personal equity uh, that weighs in the balance uh, on the basis of, uh, in, in, uh, on, the, on the side of keeping, uh, keeping the evidence out. Where there's the wrongdoing and the causation and the profit from the wrongdoing, the statement should come out, uh, should be admitted without regard to the mental state of the defendant. And on that, I'll submit. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Ms. Burkhart, you have four minutes remaining. Uh, the State says that uh, there's no equity on the side, on petitioner's side, and that's simply not true. Uh, the statement is a testimonial statement under Crawford. It, it clearly uh, must be excluded, uh, and for and for the reason that uh, it is, you know, he has been deprived of his right to test the accuracy of that statement and to expose its falsity. He claims the statement isn't true, and under Crawford. The, uh, the, the framers have prescribed a uh, categorical procedural rule for testing whether a statement is reliable, and that's the right to confrontation. And he was deprived of that right, and this, this in turn deprived him of, fair, of a fair trial. Now, the framers, in adopting the confrontation clause, understood its parameters to include certain narrow exceptions. And the exception, one of the exceptions, was a witness tampering exception. And that has a, had a very rational basis, because what it meant, in essence, is if the defendant is going to act against the criminal trial system from which he demands and requires justice, he cannot, at the same time, intentionally and deliberately manipulate uh, and thwart the criminal justice system by preventing uh, the appearance of, of uh, necessary witnesses. Uh, 
So in that case, when he does something of, uh, to that effect, then it's fair and it's equitable and reasonable, and he cannot profit from his own wrong. And that maxim that a person cannot profit from his own wrong was meant to apply to that situation. It wasn't meant to apply in the broad, generalized, amorphous sense that uh, the State uh, suggests, because that would effectively uh, substitute in some sort of amorphous notions for reliability of, of, I'm sorry, fairness for the amorphous notions of reliability standard that this Court just rejected by overruling Roberts. In in fact, what's happened here is the State uh, is attempting to resuscitate Roberts and to eviscerate Crawford. And it is no accident that this whole issue arose um, after Crawford. This is a post-Crawford invention. It did not even exist before. And the ink on Crawford was barely dry before the Supreme Court of Kansas, like six weeks later, enacted this this first um, uh, forfeiture by causation rule. And then a number of states, as California, followed. And they all cite each other as, as authority but nothing before, because nothing before existed. And when this Court in Crawford said, we accept the rule of forfeiture by wrongdoing, we submit that the Court couldn't possibly have met this broad standard that California created, because it did not exist at that time. We suggest that what this Court meant, as it indicated in Davis, is is the um, essentially the federal rule entitled forfeiture by wrongdoing, which is specifically directed to witness tampering, and that federal and and codifies, as this Court said in Davis, the doctrine of forfeiture. That has existed in, in, at the common law. That was, that has uh, been understood for hundreds of years. That was carried forward and um, and preserved in Reynolds, and that was further carried forward to the federal rule. That's all we want. We want the rule as it has always existed, not some new expanded rule that that the California has just created to undermine and eviscerate my client's rights. Um, to confrontation. We're just asking for a fair trial, which he did not get. And the notion that he's profiting, well, in that sense, everyone profits from the confrontation clause. It was designed to protect defendants from encroachment on the state. It was designed to provide defendants a fair trial. If and you're right, it, it would go back to on the harmless error question, right? Yes, it could go back to a harmless error question or perhaps a new trial. They can retry him. They have plenty of evidence on which to retry him in this case. They just want to, that's all we're asking for, a fair trial, not a trial under a brand new standard which they concocted for the purpose of eviscerating Crawford. Which is exactly Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.